Thank you for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs. My name is James, and today I'm joined by Joel, the independent game designer of a new and upcoming game here, Born from Ashes, Frontier Battles. Joel, how are you doing today? I'm doing good today. How are you? I'm doing fine. I've actually spent today uh, going through your book a couple times here and um, see a lot of potential in this one. And thanks for sending me a copy. Very well done. I, I was I, I thought it would be like spiral round off someone's home printer, but no, you have artwork and staples in the binding and like thick cardstock paper. So I was I was kind of surprised when I got the package in the mail. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad it's a good. Sounds like it was a good surprise. Like I've spent a lot of time trying to make it as professional as I possibly could, like just by myself for the most part. But. Well, when you said uh, you were playtesting games, like, okay, so there's some guy with a laptop and a printer. Sure, he's testing a game. But when you actually get a book, it's like, oh, no, this was this was printed right. <laughs> this is much farther along than I imagined. <laughs> yeah, I always try to under-promise and get, like, have a big showing when I actually show somebody something. So. Well, you, you definitely did that. So I think um, I gave a copy to Brian, who's on this show, and I don't think – he recognized what it was, even though I told him it was coming. It's like, oh, wait, this thing? Oh, okay, so this is real. Okay. But let's, I have a standard script of questions I like to ask uh, sure. game designers. So let's get started on this one. How did you even get started in miniature wargaming? Because if you're putting out a game like this, well-designed, you've obviously put a lot of time into this. How did you get started into this lifestyle? Yeah, I definitely started with like tabletop games playing D&D &D back in probably like the early 2000s. But I guess even before that, like I love Yu-Gi-Oh when I was a kid and just any kind of game like that uh, really drew me in. Uh, with creating this game, what, what really kicked it off was when I first moved to Santa Fe back in 2010, I started playing a game with a bunch of friends where I think it was based off of the, what's the vampire, the masquerade rules. Oh, um, I know what you're talking was, about. Yeah. I looked at those recently. They recently redid vampire. It, it uh, was, it was under that umbrella. White kind Wolf. Of. Yeah. It was white wolf rules, I think. And we did like a zombie apocalypse. If we were, and we made our own characters based off of us. So there was like five <laughs> of us playing and, it was a fun game, but one of the things that I really missed is that when we got into a really intricate situation and we were like downtown in Santa Fe trying to figure out what we we're going to do moving around cars, uh, there wasn't quite enough detail and I couldn't like it was hard for me to imagine what my character was doing. And so I like, went home after that campaign and started kind of tinkering around with uh, kind of creating a game with like good firearm, good melee combat and kind of a tighter tactical experience. I did that for like a month, decided I was way too busy to do anything with that, put it away. Then uh, in 2017, while I was up at UNM in college, uh, I was on winter break and me and my little brother were talking about kind of how like our vices and I was playing way too many video games because I didn't have a lot of friends up there and my little brother was gambling too much. And so we made a pact that I would stop playing video games and he would stop gambling. And about like two weeks into that, I was so bored that I just picked this up again and just kind of <laughs> kept just kept hammering away at it. Uh, 
decided to throw a whole, I don't know, I created a ton of rules, way, way too many, maybe, maybe too many rules. Uh, and that's kind of, if you look on the inside of the book, that's where psychics, bullets, and swords comes from. Okay. That's this, the overarching system that Born with Ashes is within. And I got a little bit busy again, set it down for a sec. Then 2020 happened. Uh, I was a jujitsu instructor. And so my industry kind of shut down for a good year. Picked it up again. And I wanted to make, take all the rules that I had and make a really tight experience that I thought I could uh, get onto Kickstarter. And because the rule set that I had for the whole Psychics, Bolts, and Swords uh, game setup, it probably is more of like a 200, 200 page, like 8.5 by 11 booklet. Whereas this is more of like a 40 page uh, zine. And so what I kind of envision for this, like for it, it was just kind of like start expanding into those rule sets that are in Psychics, Bullets, and Swords, and but do it a little bit more slowly. Well, that uh, leads us to the next question. How would you uh, describe your universe here? So I have the zine, and inside you describe it as, um, you know, post-apocalyptic um, and city-states. So do you actually, but you only spend one page on background. So it's very similar to like Osprey Blue Books of like, hey, here's a world. They don't need to get deep into it. And it's not battle tech, like a 600 page novella. But how would you describe the background that uh, characters are playing in? And so I guess I, I really like one of the things that's on the, uh, the cover, the heroic age of the post-apocalypse. Uh, when I told that to one of my play testers, uh, one of the things he told me was like, look, heroic age is more of like a fantasy thing. So you probably want to go in another direction. I was like, no, that's exactly what I mean. And so one of the things that's like struck me about D&D &D in general, uh, when I've played like campaigns in D&D &D is there are all these ruins everywhere. There's these ancient powerful artifacts hidden that people can go and discover. And you don't really think about it too much, but like those were like thriving high technology or like those were high civilizations at one point. And I don't think it, it's been done a little bit in the post-apocalyptic uh, sphere. But that's kind of the feel I wanted to go for is that it's not doom and gloom. It's not super sad. We lost our civilization. It's more like we forgot there was ever a thing known as this amazing civilization that we had. It's thousands of years in the future past that. And now humanity is starting to rise again out of that and just kind of discover what's going on with their world. Uh, like, what does their world look like? So a lot more of a kind of a hopeful post-apocalyptic. Okay. So looking at the artwork, I don't know. I didn't get the sense that that much time had passed. So I feared there was like a collective memory that, because in your artwork, they're still using stuff that we would recognize today. So are they still manufacturing that or is that relics? And so the, some of the technology has survived, but that's about it. And, as far as that goes, as I kind of release more books, some of that, I want some of that to become more apparent uh, with kind of that, I don't know, that schism there. I want that to be set up more as like, well, why is that? Almost like a mystery looking to be solved later on. Something that's kind of pulling people in like 
just that question of like, why does it look like that? Well, it, it reminds me of some of the, uh, how technology is treated in 40K. There's not an understanding of where it came from and why, but there's an idea we make things this way and we've been making them this way for 10,000 years and you're not allowed to make anything different. So there's that um, structure to hold in to like, this is just what we do. I would say similar to that without the heresy. Yeah. <laughs> without the deep tech religious overtones there. Yeah. I mean, that could come in someday maybe, but not right now. All right. Would, would you describe this? So you're releasing as a zine. Are you thinking um, the flavor of the game? Uh, beer and pretzel, casual home game? Or do you see this someday being a tournament game? The way, you know, Warhammer and Infinity have been treated i think it's best as more of a friendly game especially just because anytime you have somebody calling cover saves especially if it's like one fourth half three fourths <laughs> it's people are going to argue a lot if it's a tournament it's going to be so why i was exactly going to use that example because any game, like Nec I play Necromunda, and there's a reason why Kill Team has your in cover or not. Because Necromunda, 25, 50, 75, full. The arguments, like if, it's, if you're not friends, the arguments over a while, you know, that's 75. I'm not going to count his spiky, pointy hair. Like, okay. So, okay. Do you ever see it being played as a tournament game? I, I, think, I think it could. I think it, like... If that were the case, I think you would need a judge to make rulings where people disagree. Okay. So because there is, I don't want to get rid of the one third, the th like the one, th one fourth, half, or three fourths, because I think it does add something to the game. I think it's there for a reason. But I, I, I do recognize it makes it a little bit less likely to be a tournament style game, something that people will take incredibly seriously. Well, I have to agree with you there. I prefer the quarter 50, three quarters full setup just because I feel it's it's more realistic, even though it leads to more arguments. Because in Kill Team, it's like, well, he has his foot behind a wall. Does that mean he should get a cover save? Is like if only his foot was poking out from behind the wall? I mean, that's the extremes, but it was done that way to avoid arguments. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it's less, you lose the crunch on the game, but yeah. more crunch means that both of you have to have that social contract of like, yeah. okay, we're going to make this work and we're not going to argue about the 5% here. And really, I think you just got, I think you could work. You just got have to have a third party. I am more interested in the making the game less like tournament style, super buttoned down, just especially with like the model rules, as in there's not really any you can use like green army men if you want 28 millimeter so it it kind of works with any of those you know that shifts things around a little bit but it'll still work well i was so just looking at the artwork is like i've got models that look like some of the characters that i just got um in your book so i don't have the guys with the katanas in there so i don't have like the melee wa we melee weapon options there but it does make me think of companies like anvil industry of where they sell like you know the old school mix and match like i'll buy this set of arms 
they've got guys in modern tactical gear with katanas and hatchets and everything. It's like that would fit in perfectly. I can get online and like, yeah, that's what I'm all order about. a set right there. <laughs> so how would you describe, we've talked about this. I've looked at the rule book. How would you describe the mechanics of the game to the audience? How would you sell them on the, on how the game works? So I really spent a majority of the time that I made that I spent making the game, trying to get it at, to be as tight of a tactical experience as I could. Uh, what that means is that there's just a lot, I feel like there's a lot more options for what the characters can do than in quite a few other skirmish games. And along with that, that means that there's gonna be fewer characters. Like I, one of these games is played with one to three, probably two is a sweet spot, uh, characters that every player has to control. And so that's, that's kind of what the focus is, is like a tight tactical experience where it's important to have a good loadout and it's important to have good character creation. Kind of the character creation of your one to two characters kind of takes the place of an army creation or like a kill team's creation. Uh, <clears throat> so with that, it's not as it's not super important what kind of character you have though. I feel like the battlefield, the terrain and the environment and the way that you take your character and positions them within the environment is much more important than the kind of builds that you have within the game. And what that kind of lets you do is to kind of take some chances on character creation. And if you get stuck in a bad spot, you still have some options. It's not like a foregone conclusion that you're gonna lose the game. And you can see that like three or four turns down down the line. Like there's there can be pretty big momentum shifts because of the place that terrain positioning have within the game. Well, I like when I asked you to describe that, most people focus on the dice, the probability arc. You really went immediately to the how do you form the the uh the patrol force there and how do you position the characters in the environment? So your thought process was more of how the models will line up in the field and how you as the player will interact with the other player there. Yeah. And that's, I mean, because uh, I have some experience, experience with like CQB training, I thought it was, that's kind of what I focused on of how, where is would I put a character in a certain position? What are the advantages there? And there should be big advantages because with like within a gunfight, positioning is very important and making sure that you have kind of control of the battlefield is really important. More so than like, I can just see that guy shoot that guy and this character has really good stats, so I win. Yeah, so that's... So I normally ask this question, where do you think the game is for simulation versus generality? So the example I like to use is comparing bolt action to um, chain of command. So two fat lardies chain of command is they structured rules to where if you did not move your forces as platoons would in Northwestern Europe during World War II, you would lose. They said, you know, there's a reason these tactics were developed. And so our role should reflect and reinforce the tactics of the time versus bolt action, which was going for like, you know, it's World War II 40K. Um, I have an army, you have an army. Let's create a cinematic movie scene out there. 
Now, is it realistic? Probably not. I mean, we could always find some example of where this corner case happened, but that it's more about um, the bear and pretzels fun of the moment versus actually catching the simulation here. So it seems like you came down on the simulation side. Well, not to a certain extent with, uh, with the gunplay. I kind of did one of the, uh, yeah. Pulling out a katana yeah. and charging a guy with that. The, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. That's the thing is one of the, like the thing, the pieces of media that really inspired me for this game was the metal gear solid series. And so within that game, you have really, really good firearm combat. You've got tight CQB. It's packaged really well, but then you have these characters that come out of left field that can fly and do crazy stuff with swords and are psychic. And that's kind of one of the things I wanted to bring into this game where I see like the firearm combat as being relatively more geared toward a simulation. And then the melee combat being more like an anime. Okay. Or so going off I, of anime rules anyway. Yeah. So I think before the show, I told you when I, read like the background and everything and saw some of the pictures i was thinking of the old show into the badlands but when i was reading this i thought well this is um pubg this is a tabletop version of pubg but bring up the anime version i think i might help if i could get the right models i could probably sell my daughter on this she's a big fan of gun gale online and like the only first person shooter game she'll ever play is um sword art online fatal bullet because it has like the anime characters and they're playing the the game that from the show Gun Gale online. So it's like, well, this is just like it. It was like, yeah, there's guns involved, but every once in a while, there's a guy who's like the melee fighter. Um, I forget the character's name, but like just pulled out a sword. Like he can run around the battlefield and defy logic and like it works for him. So it really captured that like, well, I understand you're not going for realism, but you're trying to capture the feel like if that was possible, this is how that would work. Yeah. That being said, if you sprint out of cover straight at somebody that <laughs> has good light of sight to you, you're probably going to die. So, well, all right. So I will say, I'll give you an example of what I found in the rules. Um, the suppressive fire. So you have the small unit action and very few games actually cover suppressive fire out there so like specter ops i think has some drug war disease probably more similar to what you have here the idea of like i'm going to create a kill box and your rules actually structured to like well you as one person can take your automatic weapon and create a three inch by three inch kill box and so people don't want to go into that box issues rules will happen and you know you as when you create that kill box can just pump more and more ammo into there like really flood it with shots but you can also get a friend to set up and set up their kill box on that one and like you know what that is actual like real world tactics like when you any f any force manual marine corps you pull out and it's like hey interlocking fields of fire that's an aspect of something that's in the real world that you actually captured here uh, where there is a synergy that occurs in the rules when you actually play in a way to where you and your patrol act as a team and you interrupt and interoperate as a team, you can create these advantages as you move forward. And that plays into what you were saying of how am I a person in with a miniature on a board? How do I use my terrain to the advantage there? Um, 
because I will say a lot of times when I listen to other podcasters or when they talk about games or tournaments, there's this complaint about the board was set up wrong. And what they mean by that is the game has certain points assigned to the models. Those models are deployed on a field and they have certain synergies. But those synergies are only possible if terrain is laid out a certain way. So if the terrain's not laid out that way, my synergies don't kick in and then the game must be wrong. And I thought, we're playing war games. Sometimes that's just the breaks of, that's the breaks of naval gunfire. It, it didn't work out today, but you still got to make the best out of a bad situation. Yeah, I mean, with the, like with the suppressive fire, the main thing that I was trying to replicate there was uh, this idea of creating fire superiority. And so you get into a gunfight as quickly as you can. You want to create like that kill box, like you were talking about. Uh, within the game, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person that's getting shot at is going to going to get like even damaged right away. One of the options that that gives the character that's in a zone of suppressive fire is if they're behind cover, they can immediately go prone, which means you lay the model down. If there's no line of fire to them, then they're not they're technically not suppressed at that point. You have to have line of sight to have suppression, and so it compromises that character's either they're going to take damage and have like slower movement and have poor accuracy, or they can compromise their mobility. And the reason for that is because once you get suppressive fire, then you want to flank. And so that's kind of like that series of events is one of the things I was trying to replicate, like with those rules. Now there's, there's other things that you can do to kind of negate that. Like you could toss a smoke bomb or a smoke grenade in front of you, which makes it so that that suppressive fire has to line up on the edge of that. So meaning that the characters that are shooting at you would have poor accuracy and wouldn't be suppressing you effectively. So there's sure. kind of like that back and forth, like counters for those different mechanics. Okay. Um, well, how about what what kind of dice are we using? Because that's normally what people lead off with. Just D10, D6. D6. Wait, D6. Let's get back to that. <laughs> just D6s. Just, okay. just D6s and everybody's favorite, a direction dice. I know... It's I not saw you game. wrote that in there. It's like it's, with it's, direction dice. And I also have like with the the release, I have these like print at home assets. There's also like a scatter blast area with like direction so that you can like roll for, which that also works. But uh, I know it's not everybody's favorite, but I I like I you know where it came from. I, this is the whole reason I made this game. This is the only reason. Uh, when I first played Warhammer like third edition or something, I saw that my characters had grenades and I was like, I'm going to toss a grenade at somebody the second they don't have dispersion. And I did it to, and I was like, I throw a grenade there. My buddy was like, that's not in the rules, dude. What are you doing? That's not in the rules. That's not what grenades do. And ever since then, I was like, I want there to be a game where that's what grenades do. You know, okay. So that's something I meant to ask you. Throwing grenades, say someone's hiding behind a wall. I can't see them. Can I chuck a grenade at him? Because this, you, you can. Okay. You can. So if you, you can even chuck a grenade at them and take uh, no negatives. Like it'll be just like chucking a grenade anywhere. As long as you have line of sight to the place where you're throwing a grenade. Now, if you're throwing a grenade in an area that you don't have line of sight to, it doubles like the, it doubles the scatter. Okay. So, if, all right. Because this came up in a game of Necromunda. It's like, well, I have grenades. I know you're behind that wall. Can I throw the grenade? Like, I don't, I don't see flipping through the rule books. I don't see, but that makes sense. I mean, that's what grenades were for. Mm -hmm. There's something in there. Let me flush it out with this handy explosive device. And 
one of the best ways that grenades can be used is for like clearing out buildings. And so uh, the best way I love your pressure, your overpressure. Overpressure, because it's, yes. it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Yeah. It's rough. So if you can like get up to a window, you can automatically throw your grenade in. And it, it won't take any extra scatter because you'll be able to have, uh, in, as long as you have that line of sight. And then you'll do one damage if they're in a small blast radius, for sure. Maybe a second damage that's uh, kind of variable. And then a third damage for everybody that's inside the room. And so if, you, if somebody's just sitting in a building, which has a really good cover, like buildings in the game have really good cover saves. It's hard to hurt people with uh, firearms that are in buildings. But if you can just get surround their building and just start chucking grenades in, it's going to be game over pretty quick. Can you set the building on fire? Because you actually have fire rules there. I I no I I tried thinking about different ways that that could that could work, and within this zine, it's too complicated to be able for, to, for me to fit it into uh, the pages that I had. That's, that's something that's within more the purview of, like I was talking about earlier, the psychics, psychics, bullets and swords kind of universe and something that like might come into the game eventually. But uh, right now, build, and here's the thing though, it's your house, it's your table. If you think the building should be on fire at a certain point, it's on fire. <laughs> well, all right, so next question i'm going to ask you how many models were you envisioning on each side like how big of a force here because i think when most people think skirmish games like this they're thinking six to ten something like zona alpha what were you thinking one one to three but one to three models each side but i think the game is best played with more than two players it is most I saw fun. that in the rules i didn't understand that because he said one to eight players like he it's, must have meant models this I'm, I'm not i don't mean one i think eight is the very far end and that's a lot, but I think it's it's def it's still fun. I think the sweet spot is around six players, because with like you have you have ten models right in uh, another skirmish game. It takes quite a while to think about. Okay, I'm going to move him there. I'm going to move him over here. With one to three characters, your your turns go really fast, or they can go really fast. And so things happen kind of at a little bit of a different speed as opposed to some other skirmish games. I'm sure there's some out there that happen really fast as well, but I think to the, the bulk of skirmish games, turns move pretty quick. Okay, because when... So I'm sure anyone listening to us is hearing us talking about suppressive fire, kill boxes, grenades with overpressure and buildings. Like, what is this book like? And so when I flip through it, it's like, you are really writing that line from the type of combat mechanics you'd find in an RPG, like something like Rifts. Um, versus what is normally accustomed that's what's like you know the average gameplay if like i ran 10 guys with these rules it's like um because there's so much nuance it's kind of like battle tech there's a reason why when you use classic battle tech rules you don't have 10 mechs each side because you, you can't burn 72 hours straight <laughs> playing one of these games out so the one to three makes sense um now well it's it's a little tricky too because I, I do see this game as more of an a skirmish RPG game. And I in this this booklet, we have the PvP rules. I have a ton of fun playing PvP. I think the game really shines uh, when you're doing either a campaign or 
a uh, like a solo solo game campaign co-op. That's kind of where the game really shines. Uh, to kind of get over the amount of choice that you have as a sig- single character, uh, there like for the next release in the next book I do, there are NPCs that have like quickly assi- like actions that you can quickly assign to them. And so you can run through and like move an NPC and have them shoot in under 30 seconds. Like if you were the GM in that uh, in that scenario. So this, so you're seeing that it as more of an RPG. That's that's as intended, I guess. Okay. So how would you describe people? How many? How much can you customize your force? Like, how do you manage that? Because you actually have like a character sheet to handle the customization features. Yeah, and because you don't have a ton of ton of models that you're running, there's a lot of customization on the single characters. You're choosing what kind of armor they have, their weapons. You can. Uh, some weapons, like some firearms, you can atta- put attachments on to make them more accurate, give them special abilities, give them, uh, make them into a melee weapon with like the bayonet. Uh, you're deciding what kind of throwables they have, and then you're deciding what kind of special abilities they have with the feats. And so that's definitely the more RPG-like part of the game is that there's a huge amount of character customization. And that's one of the reasons I want to do that is because I wanted every single action that you're taking within the game space to feel like it has a real weight. Like you're you're not just going to send some character out into the middle of the map to get shot because they're because that's you only have two characters one and because you you know you spent like a decent amount of time 5 to 10 minutes maybe especially starting out maybe like 20 minutes making that character. And so each character has a lot more weight than with other games. Because now you have an inventory system with these characters, and that's part of the customization because the character has like feats, like internal capabilities and training that um, gives them advantages. But you also have an inventory system. What I liked about it is there's inventory as what you carry in your backpack and equipment, like stuff you have on you can easily reach. But you have this nuance of like, you know, if you're carrying an inv- a hand grenade, it's an inventory, but you don't have to use the full action to reach into your backpack, equip the hand grenades. No, hand grenades are special. Just reach in, throw them. Like, okay, so there's some nuance there, some ability to try to capture what you would actually have. Um, avoid some of those like D&D issues. It's like, oh, I've got that one gold piece. I'm now at half move um, to give it some sense. Yeah, and version version one of the game, definitely had had you reaching into the backpack using an action to pull it out and it really was just cumbersome uh one of the things i really wanted to focus on with the game was just it being snappy and so those fast turns and not feeling like you're getting bogged down in the minutia it just didn't it didn't feel meaningful i wanted every action to feel meaningful and it never felt meaningful to use an action to pull a grenade out of your backpack now if you say say you want to have an entire set an extra set of armor in your backpack and once your armor that you're wearing gets destroyed, you reach in there and get another armor, that should take some time. But things like using healing items, using grenades, I just wanted that to be like quick, easy, and for those actions to feel meaningful. Okay, so that's something I've brought up with other gamer design, armor. So that's something most games, when they capture armor, it becomes just an armor save. But in reality, like if you have sappy or ex-sappy plates, the second it gets hit, it's done. That plate fractures. Um, so even if it holds integrity, it's not going to stop another round. Yeah, you might get so, one or two. 
like two. Yeah. You might get two, right? If you're lucky. Yeah. But yeah, if the guy's far away, you could probably get away with two. And if he doesn't hit the same spot twice, okay. Um, but that's why you can pull the plates out. Um, so you actually have rules for like, uh oh, that I've been hit. That plate's expended. I took a blast to my helmet. Um, it's actually a choice in there of like, you know what, I might want to carry more armor. Um, but I think where I was going with like the inventory is like the idea of like a med kit. So I have three slots of equipment I can carry around me. Now I can fill those with weapons. I can carry, you know, a pistol, a primary weapon system and a combat hatchet and put my med kit in my backpack. But you might run into that situation of, gosh, I really wish I had this med kit handy, but do I turn a weapon in to make sure that when my buddy gets shot, I can run over there and do the two points of healing. Yeah. And that was, that was just another, uh, initially med kits were, did have to be equipped. And it was one of those things that during play testing, it just felt annoying. It was just annoying to have to pull your med kits out of your inventory to put them in your equipment and then use them. It just, it soaked up because the action economy is really important. This game you need to use your actions well. And if you're spending like three actions to get a heal off, it's just nobody's going to use it at the end of the day. I mean, if, you, if you're if you in a campaign mode, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, probably a future expansion, like, well, I might want to use three actions to save that guy and get the hell out of here so that two games later... But you shouldn't later... have to. It's not fair. You shouldn't <laughs> have to. Fair. People I'm, shouldn't I'm... make games like that. No. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of... Uh, uh, PUBG, like, oh no, I got shot in the stomach. Let me get some band aids. All right, fifty band aids, and I'm fine. It's a little like that, a yeah. little bit. But I mean, that's where. And I've had I've had players, uh, playtesters, argue that with me. We're like, look, I shot him. What is he going to do to bandage that up? He's like, got shot five times. And that's where the game kind of overshadows the realism. And that has to happen, or else no one's having fun, right? Well, uh, you know, it is the future. Um, you have. A lot of the art and some of the weapons you describe are present day, um, but there are some near-term systems DARPA's putting out to like blood clotting and everything. So it's just, you know, the apocalypse, ha- the apocalypse happened, you know, 20 years from now. So all that stuff existed. Makes sense. I'm seeing it more like possibly more of a thousand years from now is when the apocalypse actually happened in this world. Okay. More of a uh, sci-fi civilization, downfall, Humans forget there was ever a sci-fi civilization. Like, who built those aqueducts? It must have been giants. And now we're on the rise again, kind of figuring things out. Okay. All right. I'll have to put a theme, like a little bit more history, in like one of the campaign books. There. For, no, that's, that's really what I want to do as I start to release uh, more books, is kind of flesh out the world and do a little bit more world building. All right. Well, so we've gone into some of the nuance and crunch here that you have with the game and you've balanced that by having fewer models but how long do you did you envision a game taking to play uh especially if it's just one to two players uh it's going to be about an hour now the more players that you add on kind of the longer the game will go so a four player game probably be more around two hours and especially if you get up into eight player counts, you can be looking at like a three to four hour game. Okay. Yeah. Cause when I was reading the book, it said, okay, one to eight players, 
can lead anywhere from a one to three or one to four hour game. And uh, as we discussed, I thought you meant one to eight models per player. But okay, so the more players, well, that makes sense. You got the one guy who's on his phone and not paying attention. So when it comes around, it's like, what should I do now? It's like, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you should have spent <laughs> the last five minutes. Figured out, but <laughs> yeah. you should have had that figured out. And I've thought of it. And with bigger, with like bigger groups like that, I think a timer, like a little sand timer, comes in handy because most actions you can figure out what you're going to do in 30 seconds. So you got 30, 20 seconds to figure out. You get what the you're chess do, clock but... out. You yeah. get the chess clock and like, boom, hit it. <laughs> well so if you have eight player players and a d6 is how do you imagine initiative who wins initiative uh you just it's a roll off if, if it's a tie you just roll off yeah okay but the, you could have multiple tiers of ties and like, so yep there there so you go off the first one so say somebody gets like whoever gets us whoever gets sixes they're like at the top of the stack and whoever like doubles fives they're below that and so they just roll off for the relative position. Okay, into there. Inside. Okay, yeah. All right. So, do you have anything for um, fog of war and surprise? And I think as we discuss this, it's going to be the smoke, because as you described, um, when I throw smoke in there, I can still. Sh your rules allow for me to still shoot into smoke, but not so. to directly target. And so the only way you can shoot into smoke is through with suppressive fire. Well, so since we're playing RGPG, I immediately thought, and we talked fire, it's like, well, I can have a character, as we're familiar with in New Mexico, set a fire line, create a bunch of smoke. <laughs> but it's like, I, as a player, have a God's eye view of the table. So it's like, well, I know the guy's over there. So I'll put my three by three box in there. Um, but it's like, in reality, you wouldn't be able to see through some of the smoke to even know that's where to target yeah. and that that's something like i kind of struggled with putting into this especially because like with some of the melee character builds people are like i want to sneak around and like take fools out because just because it's cool yeah i can see that and go um devil's brigade style like and with with this system with kind of the way the rules are set up i don't think there is a good way to do pvp with sneaking and fog of war uh, somebody might, if anybody out there plays this game and has a good way to do it, please hit me up in my email. I, I personally, like I've tried it. I just don't think there's any reasonable way to do it with keeping kind of the intent that I made the game with kind of having fast, quick actions, turns take a very short amount of time and everything's kind of always going. It slows it. It would slow it down a lot to have fog of war and sneaking there uh, where I do think it could come into play and i do have rules for it within that like that broader rule set that's not in here is with more of the campaign mode uh talk talking about like metal gear solid being one of the pieces of media that really inspired me for this game i, I do want people to kind of be sneaking in infiltrating a base uh with a couple of different characters or with a couple of players cooperating to do that because that creates these really tense moments but with pvp i just don't think it's possible okay um what play area did you have envisioned but how big of a uh, table would i need for this game so just a standard three foot by three foot uh works pretty well as you get more players uh a slightly like a slightly larger play area is gonna feel good like eight players can feel pretty good on a four by six table 
but you can you can with just two players you can have even a like a much smaller play area like even a two foot by two foot is possible okay because i know a lot of ultra moderns now are going down to even a two by two table and that's for like a heavily urbanized close quarter battle um setting and then like three by threes seems to be the new standard or four by four used to be the standard for skirmish um i think you even talk about it there it's like if you have two guys two players on a six by four table you're going to spend some time there just looking it's, at the it's move not gonna be fun. people are going to be just like running away from each other but if you have more players it it really makes sniper characters a lot more fun because so now you, they, they can reach out there and touch somebody and you can't even you can't shoot them at all Okay, so that's something I want to tell the listeners. When you look at the ranges and some of the um, rifles on here, where you have, I think, a rifle with like a 54-inch maximum range on there, and it's thinking, it's like, okay, six-by-four table, and now you're telling me like multiple players. It's like you could have a team of one of those eight players just set up. I'm the, I'm the sniper team. I'm going to sit back on the hill or the top of the building, and I'm just going to range across the six-by-four table until someone flushes me out with hand grenades. And it's it's going to be hard because that's a lot of ground to cover, and especially sniper rifles can do a lot of burst damage. Uh, just because even armor doesn't necessarily protect you with like the armor piercing rounds that they have. So. Yeah, I saw that in there where armor piercing rounds ignore the armor feature. Um, they take up a lot of space in your inventory um, if if you have to burn through a lot of ammo. But there's not that many characters. That's what I'm just trying to envision how it would play out here. Um, but then would you see it where every game it's like, well, just in case they have a sniper, I need a sniper as like or a counter sniper. You need smoke. Or a lot, once again, okay. Because <laughs> here's, a, here's a good counter is if the sniper has optimized for range, they're not going to have a heat sight. And so if you can have something like a carbine and use smokes to get within range, because the thing with a sniper rifle is you can't directly target anybody in smoke. You can't use suppressive fire with a sniper rifle. If somebody's smoked, they're pretty safe unless the sniper has a heat sight. So you could sprint up on that sniper using smokes to cover yourself, have a heat sight and sit in the smoke and start putting fire down on that sniper. And so there's those interesting little counters that you can have for somebody who's optimized for a certain thing. Well, you know, that would actually force the players to practice like real counter sniper tactics. Uh, one team suppresses fires. It's not the other one moves up that one suppresses while the other guy moves up and he's, you got to work as a team to close in. Um, but as, as people can hear us talking, it's like already you're playing four dimensional chess <laughs> with and like then, three characters on here. Right. And then you, you, you just do you, you, a lot of times best laid plans, right? You say, I'm going to do this if this happens, but then you're in the situation and it's hard to know what's going to happen. Like, even though I made the game, if I'm playing the game with like myself and I have a couple of NPC characters, let's say I have like five NPC characters on one side, a few more higher powered ones on the other side. I rarely know how the encounter is going to go just because the environment and positioning does play such a factor. And it's hard to know what the best move is going to be until you're in the situation. And so, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So um, we've kind of mentioned this in 
let's just talk about the core rulebook, the one that you sent me. Is there a campaign feature and do you see the game having like a narrative arc um, to it? So do you imagine like um, the old D&D books there of like, okay, here's linked adventures. We're going to go on this. Um, or is it just scenarios stacked in a certain way till completion of victory? And so are you talking about with this booklet in particular? Yeah. So if and so there's, a purchaser, yeah, there's, will they get a campaign yeah. feature in here? Yeah, there's, there's no campaign feature in this game. Uh, I w again, I wanted to put it in there, but in the zine format, it just wasn't going to work. When I started to kind of think about doing it, the project turned more into like, you know, an 8.5 by 11 hardcover versus zine. And so this booklet is strictly PVP rules. Okay. So I should say there's two scenarios in here. So this gives you yep. all the rules you need to play. Um, you actually have some cards in here, like in the book. And you sent me like an electronic version, so I could print those off. Yeah, and so there's there's the all of the blast areas and the three by three, the different three by three uh, zones. So there's like a uh, a fire zone, a suppression zone, and a smoke zone. And then there's all the, the all 17 firearm cards and then uh, all the melee weapon cards, which melee weapon cards are more just for ease of use. You don't really need them necessarily. Uh, the firearm cards, it makes it much, much easier to use uh, firearms to cal calculate accuracy. Okay. And uh, so you should tell people this is kind of like Battletech or like some of the first person shooters where you have different ammo. So you actually can make a choice on ammos. And as we talk armor piercing rounds, there's other rounds in here. Yeah, so there's the things. sniper, right? There's all, all rifles have their regular ammo. So all, all the weapon archetypes have their regular ammo. And then they have a secondary type of special ammo that's usually quite a bit more expensive. So for, let's see, for sidearms, there is regular ammo and then there's hollow points, which does extra damage based on a roll. Then you have carbines that have the regular ammo and then a tracer round. So they can, uh, and tracer rounds, what they do is they make it a little bit more effective to use burst fire and they make it a little bit more effective to use uh, suppressive fire. And then, oh, go ahead. No, I was just thinking, you, you could eventually have like a uh, night fighting rule set in here. I was thinking about it, like tracer rounds. You and could throw more, a night, yeah. night vision goggles on here, tracer rounds, heat sights. So you could actually play at night. And that's more with the, the rule sets of like fog of war and the, uh, and sneaking that all of that stuff would kind of be coming in at the same time. Okay. Then I think there's, what else is there? There's the shotgun, which can, uh, has a slug round, which does heavy damage. And then. Yeah, that's that's everything. SMGs use a uh, sidearm ammo. Yeah, because you have double barrel shotgun and pop, pump action shotgun at mm -hmm. this point. And there's so, also a sidearm, like a, a sawed off shotgun. Okay, it, yeah, it uses shotgun ammo, but yeah. it's technically a sidearm. So I think it's fascinating where most games that use like this class of weapon systems, it's like um, they resolve down um, the complexity of the weapons into well, there's small, medium, large, autos, SMG. There's not little variety. But if people actually see like what you did, these ammos, like you went the other way. So you know what? Weapons are different. 
ammos are different. And that's where you, there's those different levers that game designers can pull. And you really pull down on the equipment side. It's like, give you a lot of complexity and choice in the loadouts that your characters can take. So it's like, take fewer characters, but you can really play around with um, some of your uh, weapon, weapon and equipment options here. I mean, you have a card for kukri knives in here. <laughs> and versus a machete, where most places just resolve that down to like, it's a big knife. But them Gurkhas, they'll hack arms off, right? Like, so it's a, I, it's, it's a nasty little weapon. It's not quite a machete. So around 15 years ago, the Nepalese armory was liquidating its stock. And so um, I bought my dad some kukri knives from there. And you could actually see the evolution of military issue kukri knives because they, they sold them in three tranches based upon year of manufacture, like they gave ranges. So you could buy like the World War II ones or you get like the older, like pre-World War I ones. And you notice that the kukri knife over time got shorter, but more curved. And it was just the nature of like, um, if they, in World War II, if they had to go to the kukri knives because they were up close with someone, but they wanted extra hack. And that's why the blade was more curved in so they could take a limb off. So you could see that evolution over time. So it's like the blades form means something. That's why people made these blades so different. Whereas with a machete, I, I saw this video the other day with a guy hacking, a cougar had attacked his dog and he was hacking at a cougar. And he was hitting it, I don't know, he hit it like 20 times and not a ton of damage. So I don't know. Yeah, machetes does not equal cougar. <laughs> does not stand well, Yeah, my, my dad went to jungle warfare school in the Philippines and like a machete's meant to hack plants. It's specifically designed. Um, for that job and that's that's why i said blades the weight and heft the tines they mean something so it's like your rules actually capture like a hunting buoy knife is not going to do the same thing as a kukri knife where most games get rid of that complexity and just focus down it's like okay it's a sharp pointy thing you stab at people which is is smart for other games that's the thing is like it's it's all based on like what your design goals are right and again a lot of the design goal for this game was maximum investment in the characters, which allowed me to have some of these intricacies play out. Now, so looking at this rule set, I saw applicability to like, since this is just the core rules and you have the ability to take, you know, team of three people, they can fight each other. Um, did you ever envision this not in the universe, like um, reskinning it? For like, I think immediately right away with some of the sniper and grenade rules, like Chechnya, like the first Chechen war. Do you see people with the ability to like reskin these rules into um, different time periods? Um, I could see doing like a World War II version of this. Um, I, I definitely think so. I think one of the things you'd have to be careful of is for like a World War II game, you got to take a lot of the melee out. Everybody uh, could just yeah, everybody could just have <laughs> knives, but as far as reskinning goes, I one of the things I want to do here is try to make a playthrough. Uh, did you ever watch Cowboy Bebop? Yes, I've seen those. Of Spike's lat. Well, I don't want to give any. Yeah. Like create <laughs> Spike. I'm no I'm not. Gonna, well, it's been like 25 years, but I don't want to in case there's any kids listening because it's a great series. But you could take Spike, make him, and then put him in a few some of the situations, kind of 
on the last episode of Cowboy Bebop and uh, just kind of play through that. Uh, there's there's a lot of those. I think it makes sense that you can take this system and put it into a lot of different universes and it works out pretty well. I think like like more of a, even kind of like a hard-boiled detective type situation, you could do that. Uh, SWAT teams, those kind of games. Didn't you think of Cowboy Bebop as the hard-boiled detective, like the film noir, it, but just uh, set? I mean, a little more, a little more wild. Okay. Right. There's a little bit more of like a fantastic and zany element to that for me okay. than nor like a normal noir, I guess. Well, that's why when I read your rules, it's like I I could probably if I could find the right models from the anime Gun Gale Online. I could probably get my daughter into this game because it cap your rules capture. I mean, some of the discussions they had in the show of where they were talking about is like, okay, well, I'm going to take weapons I'd never even heard of, like stuff manufactured in Southeast Asia. I, I have no idea what they're talking about here, but it's like with this ammo and this sight, and we'll hide behind these trees and like, but I'm going to carry the swords. Like, well, these rules would really capture that anime. That's what's like, you know, I could just reskin this and like, um, sell it to a different audience yeah i wholeheartedly hope anybody that's listening to this takes it and hacks it as much as they want and makes it or reskins it and you know do whatever you want with it but still the rules that i'm going to keep putting out aren't going to be set up for that kind of hackability necessarily okay now um so let's talk about that how are you looking to expand the game in the future so you went with the zine you have a fun little game here, but even when I read through this, it's like, you know, there's a lot of weapons, but I could see more. And there's a lot of equipment, but uh, I could see more. I mean, D&D back in the second edition game, they sold a lot of expansion books because 20 different swords wasn't enough. So <laughs> where, where do you see the arc of this game? What's your plan for after this scene? Yeah, after this scene, uh, my main focus is going to be thrown into the solo co-op and campaign booklet. The rules for that are 95% complete. Uh, a lot of the art and layout for that is already done. Uh, that's going to be bundled. I'm planning on having that bundled with a box set. And so the game is easiest to play if you have a couple of different assets, like firearm cards are one. Uh, I want to make some really nice uh, assets for that. Do you, does this count? Do you release this podcast with the video? No, I normally no. Don't. Okay, yeah. Then never mind on that. But I, I have I've like made up some of them. I have like most of the layout done for like those assets. Uh, want to give people like blast areas. Want to give people some small like two D models and think that's that's most of everything that's in the box set character sheets and so that's kind of where i'm pushing to next is releasing that box set releasing a solo co-op and campaign mode after that's set up uh what i really want to focus on like right now within the universe of the game you have kind of the city states set up they're in a loose alliance they're working together to expand their borders and on the edges of civilization, they're coming into conflict. That's where Born From Ashes, Frontier Battles, the core rulebook, and the solo co-op and campaign booklet take place. Past that, I want to start to kind of expand upon the world 
uh, do a little bit more world building and start to add in some more of these fantastical elements. Uh, one of the things that, that is in the solo co-op and campaign booklet are uh, these items that are known as like high technologies. And I guess one of, one of the ways I think of, think of them is kind of like in the movie Elysium where you have these insane pieces of technology that can shift the momentum of a fight incredibly quickly. That's what I'm looking for with that. Uh, want to start adding in a lot of different monsters, want to start adding in more of those RPG elements, uh, animals, and uh, just different kind of human characters. So that's kind of where that's pushing to. Okay, I could see. So I could see your gang being kind of like the, what the South Africans, the bounty hunters in Elysium. Um, like guys running around the frontier rough and ready they really don't want the paradise world they're fine with the way things are and that, that's what more i just meant the weapons from that movie well no that but that's how i can see because elysium portrayed a world where high tech existed but it wasn't evenly distributed yeah much like definitely. the world has always been <laughs> like the future is here it's just unevenly distributed but the idea of like those things were rare and special like those guys had to work hard because uh, what Matt Damon had that little f inserts and frames to where like he could Hulk out if necessary. Um, but yeah, definitely having that uneven kind of distribution of technology. That's something I'm going for. Another thing that's in the, the campaign booklet that I really like is the idea of leveling up the weapons. And so there's a mechanic where after getting a certain number of, like after taking out a certain number of opponents with a certain, with a weapon, you can start to give feats to your weapon. And so doing, the, doing that from the character building that weapon, that's like a fun concept. Also giving these overpowered weapons to like boss characters is another thing that's really exciting and kind of fun about that campaign. So that, that shows the D&D &D type influence. Because the way you're describing the uneven distribution of high tech, well, that's the uneven distribution of Corporal Sword plus five distributed amongst adventurers out there. Um, so, yeah, that, that that would be a different spin on it. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's that, and that's more of like the RPG element yeah. coming into it, which I think is the strongest, the, the strongest part of this game is like, the more co-op-y version, the more like campaign games. Do you see yourself doing an expansion with vehicles? Well, I got rules for it. Okay. Like doom, because uh, I can see like we were talking about at least like little doom buggies out there, horses, because like you said, uneven distribution and no one's been able to replace the mule yet. And I'll, t I'll tell you what, uh, within this game universe, uh, it's not, it's not said here specifically. It'll probably make it in eventually. All horses are dead. Oh, okay. There, oh, are, no, there are no horses. And one of the reasons for that is uh, why wouldn't these characters have horses if there were horses? And it's kind of a game-breaking mechanic. It makes it kind of complicated. It changes things up for like the combat. And so there was an equine flu back when the apocalypse <laughs> happened. And there are no horses. Okay. Uh, do sex machina. Like, <laughs> there's no horses. <laughs> A little bit. Okay. All right. Um, so, 
this game is coming out soon. You've got a release arc. Um, so what's your release plans? Um, how can I get a hold of this game? So it's going to be on Kickstarter starting August 2nd. It's going to be part of uh, Zine Quest 4. So this podcast will come, it will be August 5th. So when you hear this, go check out Kickstarter and look for this game. Uh, I will only be uh, sending copies out to the US and the UK. And just because I have, I don't know, I, I really don't have any background in layout, in graphic design. And so I had to learn so many skills to make this game. I couldn't add on figuring out the US postal system. Uh, as far as like sending stuff to Sweden, the EU, sending stuff to South America, I just didn't have time to figure it out. And so it's going to be going to the UK, the US. I do plan on having it uh, put on War Games Vault so that it can be printed off. But that's going to be something that's kind of in the future down the line. Well, I think before the show, we were talking about this of how like Planet 28 evolved. And I recently talked to the designer of Crystallum. So you see him on the same route of like, okay, there's going to be a core body of work and rule mechanics and there's going to be releases and then are you thinking of doing like nick evans did in planet 28 of like okay i'm going to do all these releases and then i'll release you know the nice uh hardback book with all the rules included so i'll tell you what one of the things that stopped me from making that outright is kind of the game it doesn't hold a normal space within the ecosystem necessarily, right? It's kind of a skirmish game. It has these RPG elements. It's not clearly one or the other. And so I felt like it was kind of a risk to spend a ton of time releasing a two to 300 page booklet just on that. Mm -hmm. And so having these small releases, releasing the rules kind of with almost like the season pass type of content release where I'm gonna do like a book and then like in six months, another book, and then in six months, another book. Uh, that's not necessarily my timeline, but something around like that. That is all leading up to me wanting to create like a like a full thick hardback book with uh, kind of the full play system in there. Because uh, I like those hardback books. They fit very well on my Billy bookcases from Ikea. But there's something to be said about being able to lay a book flat in front of you. Um, just when you're playing, um, just, you know, having a four game vault and printing it and putting a spiral binding and that way the book will lay flat in front of me and, and I don't have to break the spine. So I've, I've been recently going back and forth on that and I just end up buying all the versions of <laughs> that. Um, because the, the box set holds the attractiveness of where all the counters, the cards and everything will fit in that box and it's all contained and controllable and movable. Um, so I can you know, store it in my shelves, take it on trips with me, take it to the store and it's okay. Everything's in that box. Especially with the low model count, I could actually put my models in that yeah. box. Now, do you ever see yourself um, moving up in scale? Like having, uh, all right, so you're, you talk about the city states and you're going to expand the lore and just reading what you do have here, have the sense that when they touch the edge of the frontiers and some of the things you've said about um, psychics and everything, like there's going to be some 
menace out there, non-human menace. Um, do you see yourself doing like the next level, the squad-based skirmish game, um, where then you could fit vehicles in, um, not horses, but you know, little dune buggies and jeeps to fight whatever the vampires or aliens are at the border of the city-states? Yeah, that's... There's always going to be your core of characters where you're going to have one to two characters that are very powerful and kind of the center of gravity of all of your efforts revolve around them. Uh, even even with the, the campaign booklet that I'm working on now, there are NPCs in that. Uh, I think I might've talked about it earlier where they do have quick actions. And so you can run a force with like eight, eight models, 10 models pretty easily using those NPCs. But they, if you're going to do it quickly, they don't maybe have the same number of choices. And so they don't have like that. They, they just don't have as many choices as your main characters do. Now, you can run it to where they do. It just makes it a little bit too complicated. Uh, I definitely want there to be some larger encounters. But I, I do also, for the most part, want it to be a little bit more like an RPG where you have these characters who you have a lot invested in. They're incredibly powerful. And it's not either they're fighting like larger armies, they're fighting like a number of weaker opponents, or they have just like one big bad villain that they have to take out who's incredibly powerful. Does that answer the where, question? I kind of yeah, went off like, there. Where would I get a, a giant with an assault That's rack? And so... Yeah. <laughs> It's it's tricky. I don't know. Like I've I've made kaiju out of uh like different dinosaur models. It's that's one of the things with the indie tabletop thing. I think it's kind of fun to be able to figure it out. Kind of figure out what kind of models will work in the game that you're you're playing and and make them or you you know pull in something from uh, from Warhammer 40k, pulling something from. I was thinking the Age of Sigmar, get some of those giants yeah. in there. It's like, okay, my three guys have to shoot down the giant that's rampaging towards. And, the I, city and that's another like part of the rule sets that I want to release eventually is uh, character size and how that affects melee, how that affects range combat. Okay. Um, hmm. Have so that brings to the question. Um, you've already taught yourself so many skills. Uh, how about? STL files. <laughs> Would you like to learn ZBrush? I've, I've like... pulled up. I've pulled up Blender and like tried to figure some stuff out. It has not stuck yet. <laughs> uh, I think that's something I would probably outsource. But it's you know I every now and then once I get some free time. Usually if I just stop playing video games, <laughs> I I have some free time in my and I can go ahead and try to learn that skill set again. That's not something that's like on the near future horizon, but it is something that I would like to work into. Right now, the kind of the main thing I'm working on is more like the 2D models. And so that's that's something that I feel like I can implement now relatively well. Well, something I've... So one of the other game designers I talked to is Black Powder Red Earth. And when they released their box set, they used 2D terrain. And so it actually creates like a two... 26 by 26 inch surface and you have flat buildings and you move your models along. It's like, well, I don't really need models. I could just put down coins 
and move these around and get like the same effect. And it's like, you know what? When I got to travel on an airplane, that would be really convenient to actually bring a war game with me that's flat packable. I could like go survive being stowed in the belly of the plane there. So I, I think there is some thoughts. I, I like three-dimensional models, but two-dimensional objects do make things a lot simpler. Makes it a lot simpler for me too. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, but I think for people who are listening to this and we'll, we'll close out this interview because we've been going on for a while here, but um, so it looks like you've got the model of launch on Kickstarter, rotate into war game vault, do expansions on Kickstarter. Is that the, I, I'm asking this question from the idea of like anyone who wants to be a game designer. Do you see Kickstarter as absolutely necessary? Why not just straight to War Games Vault? Well, the reason, I guess there could be good reasons to go straight to War Games Vault. And I think that's definitely a legitimate path. For myself, the reason I decided to go Kickstarter was because I felt like the booklets that I would get from War Games Vault wouldn't be as pretty as the ones I could get made with Mixum. Okay. Uh, Mixum could make for me. It was kind of the quality of the booklet that sold me on doing a Kickstarter. At the same time, I don't really have the the money to where I can buy just a ton of booklets and then sell them out of somewhere there. And so for me, Kickstarter just made sense because I can get a really high quality product and then kind of turn that into uh, a presence on War Games Vault. And then whenever I do another Kickstarter, you can get the really fancy, nice booklet. If you want just the rules, you can get it off War Games Vault. And so it's a little bit more of like, uh, as far as the book I'm releasing on Kickstarter now, I see it as more of kind of a specialty item. Okay. I'm not sure. And here's the thing. It's my first Kickstarter. I'm not a success yet. It might not be a great idea, but I feel <laughs> I feel like that's the way that I... I really wanted to bring like the highest quality that I could to the, the first book that I released uh, with the layout, layout, the design, the art, as well as just the physical product and have uh, it still be a zine. We, we expect that out of you Santa fans. I always think you're so special up there <laughs> in your mountain retreats. <laughs> All right. Um, so... By the time this podcast drops, your game, Born from Ashes, Frontier Battles, will be on Kickstarter. Um, what's the price point that you're looking at? So when people listen to this, are you doing the digital files and the physical? So yeah, there's going to be three different backer levels. The Just the PDF is going to be $9. Uh, there's going to be an option for like if anybody's in any kind of economic hardship, uh, kind of a lower level there. Uh, then... There's going to be the PDF file with all of the additional assets. So that would be like the printed home firearm cards, printed arm melee cards, the uh, blast areas, character sheets, uh, all of that. And then there's going to, and that's going to be 14. And then for the booklet and all the rest of that, it's going to be 19. Really? 19. <laughs> okay. Now that's a really good price. I Because when you started... And you opened up with the nine for just the PDFs, like, okay, nine, 20, 30, but $19 all in physical booklet, printable stuff. That's, that's a good price. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I've kind of gone, I've struggled a lot trying to figure out what the best pricing was 
uh, I know some people might be like, well, why are all these digital files $14? And then the next level up is just $5 when you get in the whole booklet and all of that. And I guess the real answer is like, I want you to buy the booklet and get all of the files. That's, that's the main reason. I'm pushing you in that direction. Well, I mean, that, that's the point. I mean, that's how McDonald's works. They want you to supersize and go for the large. And it's just a couple more bucks and have it all. It's just right Because I want you to buy it all. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, um, maybe when I'm back in New Mexico, we can try to get a demo game. Try to catch yeah. that. Yeah. Um, because I have right over there on a on an area no one can see, not even you, I have models that I think would fit right in this. Not the melee weapons. That's going to take a little bit of thought yeah. there. But uh, definitely, I like that aspect of the highly tunable character and the ultra small model count. Um, and really just, because I don't need a new model, I can just play around with the inventory sheet there. So it's like I can keep the same three no models and say, well, that's now an optic site. So I can I can play around with all this nuance in the character without having because most games the way they do it is expand the numbers and types of models and change the physical aspect of it. Here, I mean, I could play this game with the three same three models and just swap cards in and out, and I'm good to go. And I guess that's like just based on business models, right? Like. I'm not trying to replace my nine to five job with game design. I'm just trying to create a game that I really want to play Why, and, and have make enough money that I can roll that into the next set of rules that I can, I can figure out how to make. All right. Well, in that case, I know we've kind of, Got overly excited about this one and pushed this one a little long. And we've probably gotten a little too nuanced in some of our discussions. But it's for such a small book, because I think actual rules, it's like uh, what 16 pages out of the booklet. The rest is just like the feats, the cards, um, yeah. some of that stuff. So it's actually for such a small rule set. I think we spent like 10 minutes before the show just talking about some of the trade-offs you can make in terrain and like different equipment features and tactics to be used. And that was just like a couple of read-throughs of the rules. So already right there, um, very crunchy, interesting take on the game. So anyone who's listening, at least go look at the site. Can't hurt to go look at the Kickstarter campaign. And like you said, 19 bucks. Um, spent more at Red Robin to buy a sandwich you probably didn't even like. So, Joel, thank you so much for being on Miniature Wargaming Labs. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, and for everyone out there, you have a great day. Bye.